So I have the recordings of all of our talks so far. And you know, I used to basically just give you the links for every single talk we've ever done and I just put it at the bottom of the email. And actually that's probably not a bad idea. So you can always go back to those talks if you want to, like for all of our different speakers. All of the audios are actually on the website. So every time I, I upload something to Podbean, it just automatically goes on our website under audio learning. So you can find, there are presentations from you know 10 years ago from RCIA, our missions are on there, all those kinds of things. So, so that's another resource for you all. But I think I will include those links with each of our emails. So you can just like kind of click on maybe a previous presentation and um, enjoy those. So um, we're still missing quite a few people. So um, I'll, um, I'll just try to make a couple of announcements here. Um, are there any, is there anybody besides Angel, Angel that didn't get a picture taken when they first came? Um, Christina didn't and okay. Carrie, so why don't we, um, so Dwight is gonna finish taking pictures, so maybe on our break tonight, um, you can track each other down and, and get your pictures. The reason we take your picture is we're not gonna post it on a billboard or, billboard or anything. We just wanna pray for you and get to know your names. So um, that's really why we do it. So we send it out to the team um, so the team can get to know you better. Okay, well, why don't, we, um, why don't we begin in prayer and ask the Lord to be with us as we talk about the Lord tonight. So, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we just praise you and thank you um, again for all of the gifts that you give to us, um, Lord. Mostly our desire for you, our desire for love, our desire to um, be filled up, which is what you do for us, you fill us up. Um, help us, Lord, to continue to um, move towards you because you're the only one that can do that perfectly. And so open our hearts, Lord, and our minds. Um, help us to receive all that you intend so again we can continue to move closer to you in relationship and closer to your church, your body. And I ask this as I ask all things through Christ our Lord, amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, tonight um, I'm going to talk about Christology. So really what, what Christology means is talking about the person of Christ. And I think this topic is probably one of the ones that if you are a Christian from another denomination, this is really where we share a lot in common. And so, um, and, and hopefully you'll learn something new tonight, but, um, but I think there's a lot um, that we share. And this is where I think we often feel, um, you know, really good about kind of our connection together. Um, the questions that I'd like to answer tonight, do I have the right clicker here? The questions that I'd like to address tonight is, you know, number one, who is Christ? Who is the Lord? How do we understand um, the person um, of Christ? I think number two, and this seems obvious, but um, why did he come? And particularly, why did he come in the way that he came? I think this is oftentimes a question that we, we get, and so I think that's important. So I want to talk a little bit about, about that. And then, okay, so we believe that Jesus is God, 
Um, we believe that he came to save us, certainly. There's actually four reasons for the incarnation. Um, but why do we believe this? You know, why do we believe? Is it just because somebody told us that Jesus is God? And so that's kind of been the tradition of our family. And so why do we believe that? Um, I think that there's really some concrete, objective reasons for that um, that we can grasp. Um, and then, um, you know, how does Christ continue his saving work in our life? And so that's kind of how we'll end. Um, but I think, you know, as we're talking about um, who Jesus is, I think we really kind of have to take a, a step back, and, and we will do that. Um, but this is really the most critical question that we can ask, right? You know, who do we say that Jesus is? It's actually a question that he asked the apostles, right? He asked the apostles, you know, who, who do people say that I am? And does anybody remember what some of the answers were? Who did who did the apostles? Yeah, Nick. Some will say you're Elijah. Elijah, right? So one of the prophets. Who else? What's that? Did they say that? Did they say the people said that they thought he was the Messiah, or did did Peter say that? So Peter Peter said that, which was was interesting. So so that's good. We'll hold on to that. Who else did they? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. So again, kind of this prophetic voice that people had this sense that Jesus was a great prophet, and um, and certainly that's true. Jesus, you know, had a lot to say about. Um, you know, what was going to happen, and so he really came with, you know, a prophetic word, an authoritative voice. But then he, he turned, you know, to the apostles and said, well, who do you say that I am? And, and then, of course, you know, Peter comes forth and he says, you know, well, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And then Jesus says something interesting. He says, you know, Simon, son of Barjona, you know, this, this was not revealed to you by a mere mortal man, only my, my Father in Heaven could have revealed this to you, you know? And so, so many believe that this is really kind of a, you know, a pinpointing of, you know, Peter as being kind of the leader among leaders here, right? Because, you know, Jesus is praying to the Father, you know, who, who is going to be carrying on my mission? You know, who's going to be moving forward? And, um, and he, he basically says, well, it seems like the Father has, has chosen you, Simon, son of Arjuna. Um, and then, you know, he, he makes that beautiful uh, pronouncement of Peter being the rock upon whom he will build his church. And so, um, so, yeah, so, you know, I think the most important thing that we believe about Jesus, and I think that this is so important, and oftentimes we kind of just glide right by it. But the central principle um, of Christianity is that we believe that God became man. And I remember hearing this term, the God-man, for the first time when I was in a graduate program. And I thought that was such a weird, weird kind of a word. But it is the word, right? Because God became man. 2,000 years ago, 2,000 plus years ago, the second person of the Blessed Trinity assumed a human nature and became man, right? And so Jesus has always been God. But 2,000 plus years ago, he assumed a human nature and became man. And so he is fully God, and he is fully man. So, so Jesus 
the incarnate word who became man is fully divine, so he, he became man without leaving behind an ounce of his divinity. Um, and he's fully God and fully man. There's not a shared nature here, there are two natures. Fully God and fully man. And so this is really the central principle of Christianity, which was really kind of, you know, fought, thought about in the early church. You know, it was finally, at, you know, the Council of Nicaea, which Stuart will talk about later when he talks about church history, so he'll delve into that a little bit more, where this was, you know, 300 years into, you know, the church, this issue is settled because there were many people who were teaching that, you know, Jesus wasn't really God, or he couldn't really be fully human because God can't be fully human. Um, that would, you know, destroy the concept of who God is, right? And so there were all these heresies in the early church, and so this was really the first most important controversy that had to be settled. And this is where we come up with our creed, you know, that Jesus is consubstantial with the Father, that he is, you know, wholly possesses the divine essence. And so Bishop Barron talks about this, and I'm going to show you a little flick at the end, but you know, Jesus is asking, who do people say that I am? You know, he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to hear about what people think that he can do. He wants, what do, you know, who do people say that I am? What is my very being? What do they say is my very being? Because what he wants to communicate to us is that he is God. And so, um, so Jesus is the God-man, fully God and fully human. So, what is our nature? Our nature is um, kind of the arena in which we operate in. So if I have a human nature, that tells me something about what I can do, right? It tells me that I can think, it tells me that I can walk, I can talk, I can enter into a relationship, I can self-reflect. You know, an animal nature, you know, is a nature that, you know, barks, wags their tail, um, but doesn't fall in love, even though I think Joy is totally in love with me. Um, and so, so nature kind of is that arena in which we can act. And so Jesus had a divine nature and Jesus had a human nature. And we see this, right, in, in Jesus' life. Where do we see Jesus' human nature lived out? What do you think? What are some examples in which Jesus is fully human? He died on the cross. Died on the cross, very good, Matthew? Excellent. So, so he was he was sweating blood, right? He was he was crying. He was probably frightened. Um, so he had emotions, um, you know, that that we can relate to, you know. And that's one of the beautiful things about about Jesus. The scriptures say that we have a high priest that knows everything that we have gone through because he has gone through it himself. And so, um, so yes, he was born of a woman, right? Um, in a different way, but he was born of a woman. Um, you know, he grew up in a family. Um, he, had to, he had to grow in wisdom. The scriptures say this, right? And so, so Jesus has access to both his human nature and his divine nature. And then what are some examples, easy, easy peasy, of his divine nature? Miracles. Miracles, right? Miracles, certainly. What else? What's the biggie, Matthew? Rising from the dead. 
resurrection, right? And we'll, we'll talk about that later. So yeah, that's, that's the number one sign um, that Jesus is, um, is actually um, divine. And so, so this is really the central principle of Christianity that I really want you to kind of take. And I, I think in, in our modern world, we go either one way or the other, which is heretical, right? That sometimes we, we go towards the fact that we were more comfortable with the fact that Jesus is human, was fully human. You know, that he can understand us, that he can relate to us. And sometimes we make God in our own image instead of the fact that we're made in the image and likeness of God. And then sometimes we think that, you know, Jesus is more God than he is human in the sense that he could never, he could never want to have a personal relationship with me, you know, and enter into you know, a, a, a profound, intimate um, relationship with me or care about what's happening in my life. And so we can go to these two extremes and they're called all different things in the early church and I think that we, the modern world does the same thing today. Um, so we have to be careful of that. We have to kind of be careful that we're not going on to one extreme or the other because he's fully God and he's fully human. C.S. Lewis, I think, um, you know, was, was profound when he said this. He said, um, you know, who do people say that I am? Well, Jesus was either, what, Elliot? Tell me the three things that C.S. Lewis said. <laughs> so, Jesus is either a liar, because he claimed to be God. He claimed to be able to forgive sins, right? He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, he's crazy because he's claiming all these things or he is the Lord. And so I think that's profound, you know, um, and I think that's exactly true. So Jesus is, is, is truly um, the God-man. My clicker's not working at all. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about why did God become man, and I, I think it's important for us to go back a little bit, back to Genesis, because Jesus is really the fullness of the revelation that is given to us in the, in the Old Testament. And so kind of going back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3 helps us to understand why Jesus came and then helps us to understand why he came in the way that he did. Um, Genesis 1 tells us a little bit about who we are, right? Genesis 1 is the creation story. And it's, it's that story from day 1 to day 7 in which, you know, God creates the universe and he goes from the simplest to the most complicated. So day one to day seven kind of reflects kind of what we're actually made for, that man is made to worship. We're made for the Sabbath. And so, so God begins with the very simple, and he begins to separate this incohate mass, and he makes the sky and the moon and the stars. And then he begins the vegetation, and then the creepy crawlies, and then the fish and then the animals, and then on the sixth day, it's as if he takes a deep breath and, and says, let us make man in our image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so here we have the idea then of who we are, that we're made in the image and likeness of God. We're unique in the universe. We're different from the rest of creation. We are more like God than the rest of creation. We have a memory, an intellect, a will. We have this capacity to choose. And so this really kind of tells us that, you know, we're, we're a little bit more special here. We're the crown of God's creation. 
right? And um, and then and, and also and we'll talk more about this when we talk about love and we talk about marriage, but but it also tells us a little bit about why we're made, right? That we're made in the image and likeness of God, and God is love. And so our purpose is to be like God, is to become like the image that we're made in. And so Genesis 2 kind of gives us that story of the creation of, of woman from you know, the rib of Adam. Because God himself says something's not right in creation. Something's not right in paradise. And that something is that the woman had not yet arrived, right? Because the man doesn't have anyone to love. He doesn't have anyone like himself to give himself to. And so Genesis 1 and 2 tells us our meaning, it tells us our purpose, um, and it tells us that we lived and we walked in perfect communion with God. Genesis 1 and 2 was God's original plan for man and woman, that we were made from love, we were made for love, we walked with God, they were naked and unashamed, which means there was you know, nothing that was an obstacle to them loving well. And so they were able to see each other as God sees them. And so there was a transparency that was present in the garden of one to the other and to God. There was a perfect communion, and that's really what we're made for. And that's still the plan, right? That is still the plan. That's what we're made for. Um, and so Genesis 1 and 2 tell us who we are. They tell us our meaning. They tell us our purpose. And then, of course, Genesis 3, you know, it only takes man two chapters to screw everything up. And uh, Genesis 3 is, is, is kind of our undoing, right? And we hear about sin. We hear about evil. We hear about casting God out of our hearts um, so that God then has to cast us out of the garden. And so, so we hear about this. I like to call it the anatomy of evil in Genesis 3. And, and we hear how the serpent was the most subtle of all God's creatures. And who's the serpent? Yes, yeah, Satan, the father of lies, right? The father of lies from the beginning is, is Satan. And so the serpent was the most subtle of all God's creatures. And so I, I always like to say, you know, in my marriage prep classes that, you know, the, the whole purpose for evil is to introduce doubt about what we've always known to be true. And that's really what the serpent wanted to do. He wanted to int introduce doubt about who God was. Did God say that you can't eat of any of the fruit of the trees in the garden? God's holding that on you, right? Is that, what, is that what God said? And then, of course, Eve seems to respond okay, um, but she kind of gets everything wrong. She says, no, God, you know, God said we can't eat of that tree in the midst of the garden. Wrong tree, Eve. He said we can't touch it. He didn't say anything about touching it, Eve. He just said, don't eat from it. And lest we die. Actually, he said, surely you will die. And so Eve really got the command wrong. You know, he got the command of God wrong. Didn't know the word of God. And so I, I, I say that because I think it's so important for us to be reminded that we need to know the word of God. Right? And so we're not so different sometimes than Adam and Eve. And then, of course, the serpent just says, you will not die. Just calls God a liar. You will not die. God knows that when you eat of the fruit of the tree, you're going to become like God, wise. 
Which is crazy, right? Because they were already like God. We already heard about that in Genesis 1. And so here the serpent is actually tempting Eve with something she already has. Sound familiar? <laughs> and so, you know, Eve doesn't guard her senses. You know, she's, she's open to the voice of the world. And she has really tuned out the voice of the Father. Um, and I bet for the first time, she looked at that tree. She probably never looked at that tree before. Because why would she look at something that her father, her generous, good father, had said was not good for her? For the first time, she looks at that tree. And she does what the culture does all the time. She redefines what God has said was not good for her and makes it good. That's what we see all the time. Right? In the culture, they say what is good to be evil, what is evil is now good. There's a redefinition of what God has already established. Um, and so then she takes from the fruit and she shares it with her husband because it's never fun to sit alone. <laughs> and both of their eyes are open, but they're blinded to the gift that they're meant to be for each other. Because that's what sin does. It distorts our vision. It, it makes us see things that really aren't there. And what do they do at the instant of the sin? They cover themselves, right? So, so what does sin do? Sin replaces communion with fragmentation. It separates us from ourselves, from God, and from one another. That's what sin does. Um, and then, of course, God enters into the picture and is looking for Adam and Eve. Where are you? Of course, God knows exactly where they are, but he's wondering if they know where they are. And so Adam basically makes somewhat of a confession. He says, well, I hid because I was afraid. He doesn't say, well, I hid because I messed up. I hid because I was afraid. And so God, of course, has to name his sin for him, for him, which is what is true for all of us sometimes, right? We can't take care of our own sin. God has to help us with that. And so, um, and so God says, did you eat of the fruit of the tree? And what does Adam do? The one you gave me, she made me eat it, right? Fragmentation between God and man, man and woman. And then he looks at the woman and he says, what have you done? And who does she blame? The devil, right? The devil made me do it. Great line. Um, so there's fragmentation on all levels because that's what sin does. Sin separates. God provides the consequences, which are kind of important for us to remember when we get to some later doctrines. What does he tell the man? What's the consequence for the man? Yeah, his work is no longer going to be then, you know, something that he enjoys. It's going to be toiling, which is interesting, right? Because in the garden, work was meant to be a gift. Work was meant to be something good. You know, Adam was called to be the gardener. Um, and then what about the woman? What's her consequence? Pain and childbirth, right? So, so we'll keep those things in mind as we journey forward um, a little bit later. And then he throws them out of the garden. But this is one of God's great mercies. Does anybody remember why that's a great mercy when God takes them out of the garden? Anybody remember? Well, the first mercy, actually, he gives them is he clothes them appropriately. 
right? So they've got fig trees on, fig leaves on, and he actually sacrifices animals to have to provide for proper clothing for his children. And then he casts them out of the garden so they will not partake of the tree of eternal life and be separated from him forever. And so this is a great mercy um, that God provides. And then he proclaims the first gospel. See, Genesis 3.15 is when Jesus actually begins to be sent by the Father. Genesis 3.15 is called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. God says, I will place enmity, total opposition, between you, serpent, and the woman. Who's the woman? It's not Eve. It's the new Eve, right? It's the new Eve. And so we'll keep this in mind for when we talk about Mary. I will place enmity, total opposition between you, serpent, and the woman, between your seed, serpent, and the seed of the woman. Who's the seed of the woman? Jesus, right? He's the seed of the woman. He, the seed of the woman, will crush your head. Mortal blow. God is claiming total victory in Genesis 3.15. And you, serpent, will bruise his heel. So this is, the, this is like the veiled proclamation of the coming Messiah in Genesis 3.15. Of course, you could really never know this in that moment, but this is called the Proto-Evangelium. And, um, and so the sending of the sun begins in Genesis 3.15. I love that. So, so let, let's just look at what happened here. So God provided a command to the man and the woman. For some reason, the woman didn't seem to know the command very well. But regardless, it is a man or a woman, a human person, that actually transgressed God's command, right? A human person did this. And so it's only a human person in God's perfect justice who can actually repair the, the damage. So in God's perfect justice, it's man that has to make the reparation for what has been done. And yet man can't do it. He can't make reparation to an infinite God. So in God's perfect mercy, God becomes man and does for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so, again, we're learning about who God is um, in the Proto-Evangelium, in the sending of the Son. So, in God's perfect justice, it is a man that needs to make reparation. Man can't do it. And so, in God's perfect mercy, God becomes man and does for man what man could never do for himself. It's one of my students, he just took his exam. He had a flat tire on the way to his exam today, so I had to come in and take his exam tonight. So does that make sense, you guys? So I know it's oftentimes, you know, why did God do what he did? You know, um, why did this, you know, this is um, really consistent with the nature of God, who God is, um, and how much he loves us. Whoops. So God became man so that man could become like God. This is one of the famous sayings of, um, of St. Augustine. All right, any questions about that?
There are four reasons for the incarnation. Four reasons that God became man. Give me one of them. We kind of mentioned it already, right? Yeah, so reconciliation, right? Reconciliation back to the Father. So there's fragmentation has replaced communion, and so we need to be reconciled back. Remember that great picture in that first flick we saw in salvation history where there's this separation between you know, God and man. And so reconciliation back to the Father. The second reason that God became man is to show the depth of the Father's love for us show the depth of the Father's love for us. He sent his only begotten Son to earth. Third reason is to participate in his divine life. That was the plan from the beginning. That's what was happening in the garden. A man was participating in the life of God, walking with God. And then lastly, you know, I love this last one. Um, Jesus, God became man in order to show us what it means to be human. This is one of the, the incarnation is a validation of the goodness of the human person, of human life, of what we're actually called to. And so, so there's the four reasons for the incarnation, reconciliation back to the Father, to show us the depth of the Father's love, for us to participate in his divine life, and then to understand what it means to be human. How, Jesus is the best model, right? The exemplar of what it means um, to be a human person. Okay, so why do we believe this? Why, why do we believe um, all the things that we do? We've got you know, a bunch of reasons we believe. We've, we've given a couple already. But we didn't really talk about um, the prophecies. And this is really hard to read, and um, I don't expect you to, to read them now, but this is probably gonna be something we'll talk about next week when we have our group discussion and we'll kind of look at each of these things. But I encourage you to read some of these and these are just a few of the prophecies that we find in the Old Covenant, right? So we have Genesis, which kind of gets the ball rolling, and then the whole of the Old Testament that really is a prophecy um, of the coming Messiah, how in fact we are going to be redeemed. And so I just pulled out a few. Isaiah 53, this is um, you know, a beautiful portrayal of really Jesus's passion. And so if you read Isaiah 53, um, really you're just, the descriptions are of, of Jesus's passion, of him being unrecognizable, right? Of him taking on the stripes um, of our sin. Um, and so he bore our transgressions. And so the suffering servant, we'll, we'll look at that next week when we start. Another private prophecy in Isaiah is that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. This was a conversation that um, Isaiah was having with King Ahaz, um, who's not a very good king. But, um, you know, he's, and he's, he's encouraging Ahaz, you know, ask the Lord for a sign, you know, that you're going to win this battle. Ask him for a sign. He says, no, I, I won't tempt the Lord. And so Isaiah says, ah, you know. Um, this is the Lord will send you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And so again, um, prophecy of Jesus. And then in Isaiah 60, we, we see the, the prophecy of the wise men. 
um, when they come in search of, of the Messiah. They shall bring gold, frankincense, and shall proclaim the praise of the God, of the Lord. You know, the, the wise men actually worshipped the Lord, right? They worshipped the baby. Um, and only God is, is worthy of worship. Then Isaiah 61.1, this is, um, you know, a beautiful prophecy. This is what Jesus reads in the temple, right? Um, when he's in his own town. And he opens the scroll. And he basically proclaims what he's been doing on the earth. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. That's what Jesus has been doing in his earthly life. 33 and beyond, he begins to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, captives of sin, right? Recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So here we see all of the miracles of, of Jesus that have happened, right? Jesus has, has made the, the lame walk. He's given sight back to the blind. Um, he's cured people of, of leprosy. He's brought people back from the dead. He has given people hope again. Um, and so, um, so Isaiah 61.1. Micah 5.2. Here we have a prophecy of where the Messiah is going to be born. That he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And so this is, this is why, you know, the, the wise men were searching where they were searching. They were following a star, and they knew that the Messiah was going to come to be in Bethlehem. And then in, in Zechariah, we, we see, you tell me what's happening here. O daughter of Jerusalem, lo, your king comes to you triumphant and victorious, humble and riding on an ass. What are we, what are we hearing about here? Yeah, Palm Sunday, right? So when Jesus is, is coming into Jerusalem and he's preparing for, um, for the Passover, his own Passover, right? His own um, passion and, and death. And so, so this is what the early church did, right? They, they, they heard the preaching and teaching, the healing, the miracles of Jesus, and they're reminded of the Old Testament prophecies, and they begin to kind of weave the story together, you know, and, and understand more deeply um, of who Jesus is um, and what he has come um, to do. Very different picture of what they were expecting. They were expecting a military victory. Then we also see, which is really, I love, I love the typologies that the Old Testament provide for us. Um, in Genesis 3.15, we already talked about the first gospel, that proto-evangelium in which the sending of the sun begins um, right after Adam and Eve have sinned. There's a promise of a savior, and this is veiled, right? People aren't recognizing this when it's happening. Um, but then we have, throughout the whole of the Old Testament, types of Christ. Again, a preparation for what the Lord is going to look like. And so these, these are beautiful, and they're really pretty amazing. So as you look at these folks, Adam, Abraham, Moses, David, what are these involving? Do you remember? What are all those involved? The covenants. Very good. So these are the covenants. Um, all of these are the covenants. Remember, we talked about how God is forming a people for himself. Adam and Eve, two people. Then we move into, actually, Noah's not listed here, but we'll talk about him at the end. You know, Noah's 16 people. Then we've got... You know, Abraham, who is a tribe. We have Moses, who's a nation. We have David, 
music kingdom, we have finally the new and everlasting covenant who is Christ in his church. And so God is forming a people for himself. But not only that, each of these individuals is a type of Christ, is a preparation um, for Jesus himself. So let's, let's look at that a little bit. Um, so Jesus, we hear this in, in, in St. Paul's um, writings, right? That Jesus is the new Adam. So how does that work? How is Jesus the new Adam? And I love this. And I think actually, again, the story of salvation history from, um, from the first film that we saw kind of talked about this. But Adam, of course, was the gardener in the Garden of Eden, right? That's where, that's where he began. Jesus, of course... Um, was in the Garden of Gethsemane, in which his, his agony um, began. But interestingly enough, when Jesus rises from the dead, Mary Magdalene bumps into Jesus, right? And who does she think he is? She thinks he's the gardener, right? He's the new Adam, right? She's like, you know, she, she thinks he's the gardener. And she says, please, tell me where you put my Lord. And so again, um, Jesus is a type of Adam. Adam chooses death through the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Jesus, of course, suffers, chooses to suffer for the life of the world on the cross, which becomes the new tree of eternal life. I love that. I love that the cross is, is our new tree of eternal life. Um, Adam chooses his own will. Jesus chooses the will of the Father. Eve is born from the side of Adam, a helper for you. The church is born from the side of Christ the sacrament of salvation. And so, just beautiful kind of um, analogies here. And, and I love this. Um, this is one of uh, the documents from, from Vatican II that say, you know, all of us bear the image of Adam, but all of us are called to bear the image of Christ, the new Adam. That's what we're made for. Um, and so, so, this is how Jesus is, um, is the new Adam. What about Abraham and Isaac, right? Abraham. You know, Abraham is a type of Christ. We can see this probably um, very clearly. Abraham, of course, is the father of faith. He's asked by God to follow him, and he does so. He's very faithful. He's promised that he's going to be the father of generations, right? His descendants are going to be more numerous than the sands of the seashore. And Abraham gets to be 90, and he hasn't even had one, right? And so he's complaining a little bit to God. Sarah tries to make things right, his wife, and gives him her maidservant, Hagar. Um, but it's, you know, it's not the son from he and his wife. And so, of course, finally Isaac is born to him. He's given the great blessing of a son. And then God asks him to sacrifice that son, right? And so here we have that type of Christ. Both Abraham and Isaac submit to the will of God. I mean, Isaac's probably a 15-year-old kid who is journeying along with his dad to make a sacrifice to the Lord. He's carrying the wood on his back, just like Christ did. And he asks his dad, where's the sacrifice? And then his father ties him up. His father's over 90 years of age. His son is 16 years of age. We don't think that he could maybe fight back. But he doesn't. Right? He submits to the will of his father. 
And then, of course, his hand is stayed. God does provide for a sacrifice, and it's not Isaac. And um, it's interesting because the, the place where the sacrifice is thought to take place is, is a, a place where three mountains actually exist. And on one of the mountains, on one of the mountains, this Mount Moriah was where the sacrifice of Isaac was to take place. On another one of those mountains is where the Temple of Israel was built. And on the third is Calvary. So here's the three um, mountains um, that all exist in the same area. And so, again, um, Abraham and Isaac, a type of Christ. And, and, you know, I think we talked about this at one point in our early conversation about this. Just the idea of why Abraham would ever be, why would God ever ask Abraham to do such a thing? Because I think everybody that hears the story, it's, it's uncomfortable. You think, why would God ever do that? You know? And yet, I think, again, the second reason for the incarnation is to show the depth of God's love for us. And this is one of the ways that we can get a glimpse of how much God has loved us. Because we think about the sacrificial nature of what he has done for us, of what giving up a child um, could ever be like. And so it gives us a glimpse into, into God's love for us. Any other insight into that? Any other thoughts? Is there any ever speculation that that could have been the point at which God wanted um, to save mankind from sin by sacrificing Isaac before. So know, like kind of a substitution there? Earlier on, like he had that thought, but he wasn't, <laughs> didn't execute it yet. Or I, like, yeah, I've never, I've never heard that. I've never heard that. But again, I, you know, it, it probably, you know, it really doesn't make sense in that, in that sense of it because, um, you know, can man really make that? That preparation, um, but yeah, I've never heard that. Yeah, um, I know that um, Islam is also based from Abraham. Do they know this story? Is this a story? I mean, they talk about Abraham as the father of Islam as well as you know, Christianity. That's a good question. I wonder if they have this story or how, how they what they see, think about Abraham. Yeah, actually, they have great respect for Abraham. They also have great respect for Mary. You know, it's, it's and great respect for Jesus, which is kind of interesting. They don't follow C.S. Lewis's liar, lunatic of the Lord, I guess. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure about that. Anybody, does anybody have a sense of that? Islam's understanding of Abraham, other than just great respect, you know, because they call him their father. What, 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 do they, what do they think about Jesus? Great prophet. They're not, no Trinity, though. No. Obviously. No, and not God. Oh. Right, yeah. Don't they just think he was another prophet? Correct. Mm -hmm. Just another prophet. So, yeah. Jesus is also thought of as the new Moses. And so, you know, the, the whole story of Moses, of course, we talked about Moses. Moses was prepared in a very particular way um, to free the Hebrews um, from Egypt, right? They were enslaved in Egypt. Moses was born to a Hebrew woman. 
at the time when the Hebrews were multiplying rapidly and the Egyptians were concerned about that. Um, and so they just, the, the Pharaoh decided to kill the firstborn, right? Up to two years of age of every boy so that that multiplication could slow down a little bit. And Moses' mom actually put him in a waterproof basket and sent him off. You know, Moses means to come out of the water. And the Pharaoh's daughter, of course, finds Moses. And so Moses is saved through the water. Another prefigurement of baptism, where he's saved through the water. Um, and so Moses is brought up in the palace in Egypt. And he's nursed by his Hebrew mother. And so he gets formed in both worlds, which again prepares him for the mission that he was going to be called to many years later. That is to be sent back to Egypt to free his people. But of course, Moses kills an Egyptian soldier, and so he has to run for his life. And he kills an Egyptian soldier standing up for one of the Hebrews. So he's always kind of connecting with both sides. Um, but he has, to, he has to run away because now he's wanted for death. He's wanted for murder. So he has to, he has to escape. He does, and then of course the Lord calls him back. That's when we hear the burning bush. And he sends him back um, to go through all the plagues that the Lord sends him through. And so, you know, Moses was to assist the Lord in freeing his people from spiritual and physical bondage. Um, of course, the final plague that happens when Moses is freeing the people from Egypt is the plague in which, again, the firstborn, you know, of every household in Egypt is going to be struck down. But the Hebrews are going to be saved, right? And how are the Hebrews saved? They take an unblemished male lamb, just like Jesus, who's the Lamb of God. Unblemished male lamb. They kill it. They take the blood of the lamb and they mark their doorposts with the lamb. And then on the night that the angel of death is going to come and strike down the firstborn of each of the children in the land, the angel of death is going to know to pass over those households that are marked with the blood of the lamb, just like you and I, right? That were marked with the blood of the lamb. And then, of course, they're not just marked with the blood of the lamb, they're actually instructed to eat the lamb. And so again, we get a prefigurement of the Eucharist, um, that we need this nourishment so that we can be strengthened for the journey. And that's, that, that's the journey they're going on. And our journey, of course, is, is from Sunday to Sunday, to be strengthened um, with the Eucharist. And so, so this Passover, this is, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover, right? This is what we hear. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There is a ton of connections between Jesus and, and Moses. Both of them were born at the time of a ruthless king. Jesus is born during the, the reign of Herod. Moses is enslaved in Egypt for the time. Joseph is told to take his family to Egypt to escape from another ruthless king. Moses passes through the water. Jesus is baptized by John. Jesus baptizes the waters. Moses turns water into blood. Jesus turns water into wine and then wine into his own blood. 
Moses receives the law from Mount Sinai. Jesus gives the new law in the Sermon on the Mount. Moses' face glows with the glory of God, and Jesus is transfigured before them. Moses appoints leaders to assist him with ruling the people. Jesus appoints the twelve to lead his church. Moses institutes the Passover, which frees the people from bondage. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So God is never violent with us. He's always preparing us for what his plan is for us. And so we see this in these types of Christ. And then, of course, Jesus and King David. You know, King David is that final covenant before the coming of Christ. David is a man after God's own heart. He is a sinner. He is fallen. He's done all the capital sins. And yet he is always repentant. He is always sorry. He always comes back to the Lord. Um, he's actually designated the Son of God when he's anointed by Saul. Jesus' name, actually, the Christ means the anointed one. So again, this parallel. Jesus is the anointed one. And David, of course, is anointed by Saul and called the Son of God, who Jesus actually is. David's kingdom is an international one. Jesus sends them out to baptize all nations. Jesus' kingdom is an international one, too. The Davidic kingdom is in Jerusalem, right? And we consider our Jewish elder brothers, our Jewish brothers and sisters as elders in the faith. You know, we, we consider them as being elders in our faith that we are a fulfillment of, of what they have begun. Ancient Israel believed that the temple was built on a sacred rock. Well, so too is our church, right? On the rock of Peter. God gives Solomon wisdom to lead his people, and Christ gives the spirit to the church to lead her into all truth. So again, the parallels are, are pretty, pretty amazing. Again, this whole preparation for the coming of Christ. Any questions about the covenants? And so kind of this, that's the importance of the covenants, right? Again, just this forming of, of God's people for himself, of a preparation for, for the person of Christ. So remember, we're talking about why do we believe? Why do we believe that Jesus is God? Well, here's um, just some additional things that I'm sure you've all heard maybe a little bit about. Why are I am statements important? What does it mean when Jesus had these I am statements. Where does this harken back to? Yes? To um, God's uh, explanation to Moses about what his name is. Very good, Christine. Yes, so it's, it's, you know, Moses says, well, who are you? I am who am. And so, you know, Moses recognizes, again, who does God say he is? He doesn't say what he does. He's, he claims his very essence. This is what Jesus wants us to understand about himself. You know, that he is the creator of the universe, and he is who is. He is being itself. Um, and so these I am statements, um, all of these are found in John's gospel. Um, this, this is a statement that Jesus makes um, when he's in a conversation with the woman at the well. And he claims, you know, knowledge of those who build the well. And of course she says, you know Abraham? You know Jacob? You know, how can you know these, these people? And he says, before Abraham was, 
I am. So again, just a stunning statement. When the soldiers come to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane, they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he. And the soldiers fall back from the power of his name. I am he. And then, of course, all these claims that Jesus makes, again, you know, he's not going to cause the resurrection. I am the resurrection. I'm not going to give you life. I am life itself. I am the true vine. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. So all of these are, are just claims, again, that cause Jesus, actually, to be called a blasphemer because he's claiming divinity. He's claiming um, something that no one's um, ever claimed before. Other statements um, by Jesus in, in sacred scripture or by the writers of sacred scripture, John's prologue, of course, all of these wonderful statements are from John, but when John basically, you know, makes this claim about who Christ is, that in the beginning was the Word. Jesus, of course, we call Jesus the Word of God, right? He is the Logos himself. The Word was with God, the Word is God. That's why we say all things are created in and through Christ, because in that, in that creation story, that's how God creates, through his word, right? He says, let there be light, and there is light. Let there be land, let there be sea. And so it's all things are created through the word of God. And then, of course, these, these claims that you're going to hear next week from Mark when he talks about um, the Trinitarian reality, who is God. This is Jesus, again, claiming that he is one in being with the Father. Whoever sees me sees the Father. The Father and I are one. If you knew me, you would know the Father. And so, you know, these are the claims that Jesus makes that, you know, make people wonder, who is this man? And then, of course, um, another reason we believe is because of the miracles of Christ. And I don't choose these first because um, the miracles, um, the healings, I think they're magnificent and they're wonderful. Um, but what does Jesus always do before he cures someone. He does the most important thing. He forgives them of their sin. Because it, it's, our, it's our heart that really needs to be healed. It's our heart that really needs to be um, made well. And so he always forgives sins first. And then so that people can know that he has the power and the authority to forgive sins, he heals. He provides those miracles. Um, you know, makes the blind see, makes the lame walk, brings a little girl back from death, brings Lazarus back from death after he's been in the tomb for three days. Lord, there will be a stench. You sure we want, you want us to open that, that door? Um, and so, you know, he is the one who gives life. John the Baptist is called perfect, but John the Baptist never performed any miracles, right? He never said he could forgive sins. In fact, what he claimed was he wasn't worthy to tie, you know, the shoelace of the one who was going to come after him. And then I think one of the most amazing miracles of Jesus is the multiplication of the loaves. It's a prelude to the Eucharist. 
Um, and it again prepares us for what's going to happen at the Last Supper. Um, and of course, his, his apostles don't really want to hear about his passion, his suffering. Um, but, you know, he, he performs this great miracle, um, and people want to follow him because they want to continue to be fed. And so, um, so they miss the point. Um, but Jesus continues um, to lead his, his apostles forth. And so it's, the, it's really the Last Supper um, that Jesus institutes the Eucharist. We believe that the, the institution of the Eucharist happens at the Last Supper, that his apostles really participate, partake in um, the body and blood of our Lord. He says the words of institution at the Last Supper. And so the apostles are invited to share in this, to share in Christ's body, they're in communion with him. Um, they don't understand it, um, but, um, but they follow. Probably one of the most scandalous things about Jesus is, is that he was killed, right? So this was the great scandal. How could he actually be the Messiah if he was crucified on the cross? And so the crucifixion is the most widely accepted fact about Jesus and the greatest scandal for him. Um, which is why, you know, the resurrection is, is so important. This is the reason why Jesus was crucified. All of the things that he was claiming, he was claiming basically to be God, that he could forgive sins. He regularly broke the Jewish laws, particularly those around the Sabbath. Um, they, they claimed that he was performing magic in alliance with the devil. And so all of these held the penalty of, of death in Jewish law. And of course, the resurrection, it's, it's the most important reason why we believe um, that Jesus is God. Um, and he, he's proclaiming this, right, even when he's preaching and teaching. He talks about the temple, which of course, um, he's referring to his body, that he's going to, um, he's going to tear it down and in three days he'll build it up again. And he's talking about the temple of his body. But the resurrection is something that is witnessed by, by hundreds of people, right? Um, he appears to the apostles. He appears to Peter. They claim 500 witnesses. St. Paul um, experiences Jesus' resurrection in a different way than the rest of the apostles. Um, but he's blown away by it, literally, right? Um, Mary Magdalene sees him as well. So this is not a late development. The resurrection isn't something that... Um, that we decided happened later. Um, and the resurrection was critical to send the, them into mission. Um, I mean, you, we think about it, you know, people's lives were transformed by witnessing Jesus's passion, death, and resurrection. You know, it's one thing, you know, to die, you know, for, I don't know, for someone that you really love, you know, for someone that, you know, but these folks were, were being martyred. You know, they were, they were dying for their faith. Um, and so, you know, if it wasn't really true, how could they do that? How could they be eaten by the lions? How could they be martyred? Um, how could they go through what they went through? The apostles' lives were transformed. They were different um, when the sending of the Spirit happened. They were transformed. You know, Peter denied the Lord. But after the resurrection, after the ascension back to the Father and the Spirit of God came into their lives, 
They were preaching and teaching. They were bold. They were imprisoned. They were martyred. Um, they did things that um, you know really showed that they were forever changed. And in 400 years, it was the most powerful religion in the empire. Um, and it started on the backs of the apostles. And so, pretty amazing, pretty amazing. And then, just to kind of wrap up here, how does the saving mission of Jesus continue? Well, it continues in the church. You know, this is why we believe the church is, is so central um, to what Jesus was building. And this, too, was prefigured. The church isn't something that, you know, just came about um, based on Jesus' statement about my church is going to be built on the rock of Peter. We have prefigurements of the church all the way back to Noah's Ark, right? That um, Noah and his family entered into the ark. It was, it was the saving, um, really, house of God, in a sense. They were saved through the waters. And so the ark is really a prefigurement of that. And I know I've talked about our, just the architecture of our churches. That if you look at our churches, we use nautical terms for the nave. Um, and then if you look up at the, you know, the ceiling, it's like an upside down boat. If you turn it over, it's like a, a, the bottom of the boat. Um, and so, so the prefigurements of the church have been, have been with us since the beginning. The Catholic Church is, is both visible, it's invisible. We are not a church without walls. We're apostolic. Um, it is an extension of the Incarnation. It is his body. Um, and so the four marks of the church, which we'll talk about when we get to the church, are that it's one, it's holy, it's Catholic, and it's apostolic. It's one because God is one. It's holy because God is holy. It's apostolic because it's built on the, on the apostles. And it's Catholic because it's universal. It's meant for, for all. And this is, this is how Jesus continues his saving mission. In and through his church, who is also you and I. His hierarchy, the magisterium, all of those things embody the church. Okay? Why don't we take a quick break um, and then come back. And if you have some questions, and then we'll watch our video.